Welcome to the Innovation Meets Leadership podcast. Real inspiration for real innovators. If you're looking for innovation and leadership transformation, your journey starts now. Welcome to the Innovation Meets Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Bourne. I would love if you would help us spread the word by leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And guys, today I want to welcome Hungary to the list of the 49 plus countries listening from around the world. Well, guys, I have a treat for you today. My guest is Thomas Watkins. Thomas is a thought leader. Hello. He's a speaker. Yeah. Say hello to all the all the folks hello, out there. Hello. <laughs> so you're a thought leader, you're a speaker, you're an industry practitioner. You're based in Houston, right? Yes. Yeah. Based in Houston. And you've made a career of really focusing on technology, design psychology, in order to drive business success. And what, one of the things I love that we're going to talk about today is that you kind of take some things that are complex and you help your clients simplify them, which I absolutely love. So I can't wait to dive in. Awesome. I can't wait to either. Well, so let's take a little bit of a moment and talk about user experience. This is, I feel like for people who are not deep in the product development or technology world, this may feel a little bit like a buzzword user experience, but let's really unpack what it is. And then how do people sometimes go wrong <laughs> when they approach user experience? Right. It goes wrong all the time, but it's user experience is you're making things easy to use. And to achieve that, we use design psychology. And that's really what I think the profession ought to consider itself. We are design psychologists, means, meaning we, we are at the intersection between the human and the technology. And we're trying to make that intersection as clean as possible. So talk to me about, like, obviously, when you think psychology, right, we think of brain science and some of the things that go into how the brain is naturally wired to work. So when you kind of pair those two things together, design and psychology, what kind of leaps forward in that intersection? So every time you're using an interface, you're having to interact with it. So the user has to enter. They have to notice things. They have to sometimes remember things. Things have to seem familiar to them. So that's the, where the idea of design patterns comes in. And you have to, if you are using it, especially uh, productivity software, right? If your user is trying to do stuff with it, then there's going to have to be match their mental models. How do they view things, right? So you have the things, what they really are, and then they have what your user thinks that is. And if you can design for that, you can make things basically invisible to them where they're they see their work, but they don't see your interface so much, right? And, that, and that, that fades into the background and you're able to support what the humans using your software are actually trying to do. Well, it's interesting when you said they see your work, but they don't see what, you know, see the software. I mean, it's almost like what you're saying is if it's, if it's approachable enough, if it's smooth enough, they're actually not really noticing per se that they're using the software. They're just doing something that's making their their job, their world more productive. Exactly. So if any time a user has to think about your software, usually that's not a good thing. Not the, there might be a, an initial introduction phase. You download an app, you're like, oh, this is a nice, awesome app. And like, but where their mind should be, it should be on the content of what's on, this, on the screen. So if you're using like um, Evernote um, or something like that or Bear or whatever note 
you should be thinking about the content of what's in your notes and all that stuff, not whether the plus button is what you click to add something or the difference between a notebook and a node and that being confusing. If it's, a, if it's something that's easy to learn and for you to operate in, then that's where the win is for a lot of software. Well, I think about like some of my favorite apps to use. Like I, I love using Audible. To your point, I never, I just jump in there, you know, hit play. I can even tell Siri to play Audible. Like I, there's not a ton of thought on my side that goes into using that app, but it's one of the apps that I open and use daily. And so I think what you're leaning in here to is something that just ingrains naturally with the way that we use products. Like I think a lot about where people are designing products and they say things like, well, the way I would use that is, and I'm thinking, well, we don't care how you would use it. We care how the customer would use it. So often when we're sitting in this seat of designing something, we think of it through our lens versus the customer's lens. Well, that's right. And so that's why it's important to understand the actual users. And the way you do that is you get away from your assumptions and you get to the reality of what the user. So when you're, you know, I'm sure you've worked for big companies before where you've got uh, directors and executives and managers who all have their idea of what the user is. And it might be kind of like an overly generalized idea of what the Mm -hmm. user is. And then so then you get into the user's environment, you ask them what they're actually trying to do. And once you understand that, then you can adapt to what they're, and, and people will always say surprising things. And so that's why research is so necessary. So for example, let's say you were making some kind of an application for, I don't know, bus drivers. And you'd say like, okay, what's the goal of a bus driver? Well, the goal of a bus driver, that seems obvious, right? It might be, I, they pick people up, they drop them off to their destination, period. That's it. But then if you maybe talk to actual bus drivers, they might say something interesting like, well, my goal is to help people. Um, okay, that's interesting. It's like, well, you know, one of the highlights of my day is when maybe a handicapped individual is coming onto the bus and then I help them get on or, I, or somebody is confused about where to go in the city and then I help them do that. And you say, oh, well, if that's how they view their job, I can better create this special app to really fit into what they're trying to do and to satisfy and, and meet their needs because I'm understanding like, who, you know, what they're trying to do, the tasks, the user, and all of that. And, and then it is going to come together usually as a more successful product because of that. I love um, what you're saying there because it's really us trying to listen through their lens, not our own assumptions. And you said that earlier, but that is such a, a profound principle to me of innovation is like the wisdom always lies with the person that is doing the job or using the job. So the more that we talk to them, the more we just have these random aha moments that lead us into how to build for their situation. And so I just, I love that because to me, people who, who innovate in a silo or they create in a silo, like they, one, we're creating something for, I don't know who, right? Cause we're not, we're not having the conversations, but two, we're not picking up on the natural wisdom that's in that person's day-to-day job that actually enables us to create and to build for what matters to them. That's exactly right. And then testing is a big part of that too. So you're actually doing the research, the formative research, where you're forming your ideas about it. And then you have the summative research, right? So where are we going wrong? Mm -hmm. How can we correct things over time? And that's a part of making the technology seamless. Because when you think about it, it's and why it's so important, right? It's there's technology everywhere, there's data everywhere, we're, we're 
in a data age. And so humans are interacting with this at all these different touch points. You mentioned using Siri for app for um, Audible. So you're using a voice and listening interface, right? You're using uh, visual interfaces and touch interfaces. So that's you interacting with the whole technology apparatus of, you know, that in society. So how do we make that more seamless? I think, you know, it's probably worthy of becoming a broader agenda for us as designers. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. We sometimes get so pigeonholed in our app or our thing or our website or, you know, our responsive design, but we don't think about the whole person and the whole way that they're going to get to the app in the first place or the whole way they're going to use it. And so it's almost like mapping out that entire journey, not just being so focused on our own thing that we're building, but understand how do they get there? And then where are they going when they leave there? Like what's next for them after that? And how do you make things more integrated, more seamless for them. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how can an organization that's not thinking about this at all today, how can they start to ingrain some of these principles into their culture? Like if you could say, okay, there's, you know, probably a hundred principles in what you do. What are one or two principles that just really matter to this space? So things that people can act on now. I think that, um, One is getting folks, the decision makers, to compare it to the applications that they know about and that they like. And now that everyone has smartphones, it's easier to get executives to understand that things need to be usable. So would you rather be forced to use this app that nobody wants to use to fill out time, for example, at work? Or would you rather it be like your favorite app? So then a product success is linked to that UX. And I think one thing is to view UX as a feature. So for for organizations that don't really think about this and they don't kind of slot it in as a, to have its own space, one, I think, effective way is to get them to say like, to view UX as an actual feature itself. So like we have the functionality, but in order to be competitive in this marketplace, we have it as a feature. And then depending on whether the company's selling a product I think just looking at the competition space and how are you going to survive in your marketplace, yeah. that it's, it's going to have to be something that resonates with users. If you're doing a digital transformation at a company where you're making your own software, like an IT department, mm-hmm. there's all kinds of questions about costs. So training costs, adoption or lack of adoption costs. And I think really it's about connecting it with the bottom line for folks. And it's not that hard to do once you kind of know what's going on. You know, it's interesting as I listen to you you talk and, and think about this space and this area. One of the things I think is it can be so hard is sometimes organizations are so stuck in their tradition or their ways of doing things. I was actually talking to somebody the other day and they said, well, ideas die the closer they go up to the top. And so You starting with that idea of like the top down, I think is so important because oftentimes if you don't have support there, your idea, your thing that you're trying to accomplish will never see the light of day. And so something that I've started to adopt when working with organizations is let's come up with the plan. Let's socialize it at the top. Let's get them to support it because if they don't support it, it's not going to get very far. And then let's go do it. And so this idea of, of create it, pitch it, get support and then go implement, I think, I think it's something that's just missed in the nuance of how do you get your idea, your principle, the thing you're trying to accomplish, whether it's building something or just getting a culture established in an organization, that loop 
is so important in terms of getting people to move forward and do the thing that you know needs to be done. But if you don't socialize it the right way, it never sees the light of day. Yeah, there's a couple of things there. So if you're a maybe a design, either a design consultancy or you're a new hire, you want to start at the top the extent to which you can. And you want to ideate with folks who are, you know, either right next to the top right away and then quickly get buy-in from the very, very top and then have that trickle down because you're right. Otherwise, if you're trying to fight the idea of the way up the ladder, it's, it's going to die somewhere along the way. So that's starting at the top when you can. Another thing is including folks at the top. So let's say you're not that powerful at your organization and maybe you're doing some early research for a next generation of your software. One of the things that you do is include the executives from the beginning, the extent to which you can have early collaborative sessions where you get everybody in a room, you get the sticky notes out and the markers on the board, and at the bare minimum, gather assumptions from everybody. And then and there's books on the different activities that you can do that work out for this. And when you get folks to realize that part of their ideas are included in this, then that helps you get buy-in there too. And then you mentioned another thing is the culture of UX. It's trying to get an organization to day in, day out, have this idea that the user is embedded in what they're doing. I remember getting a tour of the office place of blinds.com. They eventually got acquired by Home Depot. Mm -hmm. And when you walked in, they had this station that was, this is what the user's world is like. And they had a literal, like, like, like picture a wall with all that stuff attached to it. And they'd have things like a telephone there. And you pick up the physical telephone and you would hear what the user hears when they call Blindstock. You, you would hear what they hear when they call the company and the, the menu that you have. And you put down the phone and then there was a physical mailbox there. And you open up the mailbox and you would pull out example letters of, wow. what a, of what a user would actually get, a customer would get in the mail from them. And then all over the wall, there were kind of artifacts pinned to the wall that illustrated, this is what our user experiences with us. And when you ground the whole organization in that, then it's way easier and it makes necessary changes much less controversial when you're trying to make effect change within your organization. That is so powerful because there's that make this so, right? That can sometimes come from top down. And then we just go make it so, but we don't think about how it impacts the user. We don't think about the phone tree that they have to use in order to get to the right person and how there's nine steps on that and they have to sit through the ninth step. It's funny, whenever I call my doctor, one of the things that it's such a long thing, one of the things they say is, if you're experiencing an emergency, hang up and call 911. And I feel like I'm experiencing emergency by the time I get through their phone tree. Like it's so right. long and frustrating. I'm like, no, I was not experiencing emergency, but now I am. Like I'm having a panic attack. So yeah, I mean, that is so important and useful when trying to affect change is actually bring them into the environment and let them feel what it feels like to be a customer. Yeah, that's right. And the theme is getting out of our own world and into theirs. And one thing that a lot of organizations struggle with is that your customers do not experience your product in separated departments like you do. Wow. So if your customer has a problem, they don't care that 
well, that's supposed to go to the ticketing department. And then this part mm -hmm. over here is supposed to be the customer success department. And then this one is the product team. So that your feature, they just care that they see your logo, they see your homepage, they see that stuff. And then they hear you on the phone. That is you to them. Wow. So when we can start to understand that our, we have our own internal politics and departments and stuff like that, mm -hmm. what you're serving up for the user is needs to be a united experience. Wow. That's so powerful. I would love to talk about how design psychology affects your innovation process. Like as you think about the world of innovation, how you approach things, how you think about how you're going to design it, how you're going to attack kind of whatever the problem is you're solving. How does design psychology play a part in that? We start with the user and go to their tasks. So the first question for, you know, let's say that my me and my design team are on a new project and we have to design a solution for something. The first step is understand the business requirements is really the first step. Quickly after that, when you're doing that, who are the users? So personas. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a scale of rigor there. You can do, go gather assumptions, make proto personas, or you can make the rigorous ones that are based on a lot of data. But who is it? You want some representation of who this is. Then per user, you have some set of tasks that have to be easy for them to do. Um, and you, for each persona. And then everything that you design, you are aware of who's the persona and what exactly are they trying to do? And then things become centered around that rather than centered around a screen or centered around a feature. I mean, when you're making things centered around screen, I'm designing this screen or I'm designing this feature, that's when you start to have disconnected experiences. But when you shift the center of the focus to the user, that's when you're able to create a connected experience because the questions that you're asking, the tiebreakers when you're debating two different design routes to go through, the tiebreaker becomes the persona and the tasks that, that uh, need to be completed by them. Wow. That's so cool. And I love just leaning into some of those elements. I would love to know a little bit more about like, how do you pull the team into this experience and make them a part of that journey? You're talking about like the broader kind of executive team, mm -hmm. development team and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's certain, there, there's a whole toolbox of all these research methods that you have at your disposal. Some of those research methods really lend themselves to involving lots of people. Right. So if you have some of the uh, early kind of affinity mapping, right, mm -hmm. you can pull in executives and say, okay, who do we think the persona is? And who do we think the task is? And then now you get to gather everybody's thoughts. If it's wrong to a certain degree, well, that doesn't matter because you're going to validate this later and you're going to come back with the real results. But by involving folks, having them write down in their sticky notes, really what you end up doing is information architecture in its most literal sense. So you're gathering all these concepts, like let's say they're on sticky notes, and you're organizing and reorganizing these concepts and you're challenging terminologies and you're putting all of these ideas and things where they belong. Some things are parts of screens. Some things are types of data. Some things are job roles. And all these concepts live somewhere. And when you start to pull things together and make them kind of materialize, you're able to paint a picture of the world that's a lot more clear and it's easier to kind of, you know, come up with product direction and to steer things. But 
involving the execs in that, that gives them a lot of buy-in. They know that their ideas have been listened to and they can hopefully see where their ideas go on to live in whatever's getting designed and developed. I love, I love that because they're included up front from the beginning and they're part of the conversation, which I think is so crucial for this work and for this work to be successful. Um, any final thoughts for our listeners today? Yeah, I, I think that um, a final thoughts are, I think, make folks' lives easier by understanding them and find your success within their success. I love that. Where can people follow you? They can find me. So I'm not very active on my social media, but Three Leaf, the number three, L-E-A-F, Three Leaf Method on Instagram, or if you want to find me on LinkedIn, it's going to be Thomas Watkins. If you want to go to the website, that's going to be threeleaf.consulting. That is awesome. Well, I hope people will avail themselves to go do a little bit of research on you and just really lean into what you're saying here because there's there's so much in this space that you've spoken into today that I think is going to help people with their innovation and their leadership process as well. I hope so. Well, thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. Well, to our listeners, thank you for joining the Innovation Meets Leadership podcast. Remember, don't just get out of the box, break the box and set it on fire. Let's go transform something. Thank you for joining us for the Innovation Meets Leadership podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Innovation Meets Leadership and visit our site at innovationmeetsleadership.com for more innovation resources. Today's sponsorship is brought to you by Territory Global. We work at the intersection of experience and imagination. We help you pinpoint problems and turn them into opportunities. We make imagine happen. Some of the best organizations in the world choose us as their partner to help solve their strategy, innovation, transformation, story, and ways of working problems. Learn more at Territory.co.